are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day the hand of the Lord was on me, and He took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of God, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Thank you, Sherry, for reading. One of my favorite pictures of my wife is one of her standing at the top of the Swiss Alps. For her 40th birthday, she did a mountain climbing trip. And so there's this picture of her hands outstretched you know, in the thin air, bluebird sky, and just praising God at the top of the Swiss Alps. It was a trip that she did a, a few years back. Then I was thinking about me, on the other hand, how I celebrated my 40th was had a few relatives over to have hot dogs and brats. So... But when I think about, you know, one of those places and those pictures that is like standing on holy ground, that's it. And Esther said to be up there, to be in that place, celebrating a 40th was something pretty sacred. So for you, where have you been that you have had the sense of standing on holy ground? It could be a long ways away, like Esther at a special destination, or it could actually be quite close to home when you have this sense. And then there's the other question I'd ask you that I didn't want us to necessarily toss around the table, but have you ever experienced the opposite? Have you been someplace that felt God forsaken? Probably we could tell those stories too across this room, though some of us might rather forget them. We've been making our way through the book of Ezekiel these past few weeks under this series title, God Will Strengthen. We've been asking ourselves the question every week, How does God say that he will strengthen us? If we're weak and we don't have it all together, and we don't, how does God strengthen us? If we're gripped by fear or the reality of anxiety in our life, if we're discouraged in this season or depleted, how does God say that he will fill us back up? The Bible says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. You know this passage? It says, They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. And so we're just asking these weeks, how does God do that? That sounds like an amazing promise. 
How does God strengthen us? And we're finding out through the book of Ezekiel. Today we move into chapter 40 and we take that question into the final vision of Ezekiel. The book is characterized by these different visions across 48 chapters that God gives to Ezekiel. And many of them are incredible as far as the imagery and the vividness of these visions. Last week we were in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. But now in chapter 40 we move into the final vision, the last section of the book, and it's the vision of the new temple. Did you know it is the longest recorded vision in all of the Bible outside the book of Revelation? And so we're going to be here for the remainder of February, Ezekiel 40 to 48, and it's here in these chapters that we'll close out the book and then be ready for Lent as we begin the month of March. For today, though, how does God strengthen us? We'll start in chapter 40, and then as you saw, we make this big jump into 43. Ezekiel starts by noting this time stamp for his vision, and he's really quite specific. It says there, and if you have your Bible in front of you, in verse 1, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city. And numbers aside for a moment, we could spend time discussing why they're there and why they're important. But let's set those aside. We also are just reminded of the setting for this whole book. That Jerusalem, their city, has fallen and God's people were in exile. Their home country had been overrun, their capital city destroyed, the Babylonians are now in charge. So Israel is no longer a sovereign people, but they are a vassal state, and Babylon had emptied the land of its leading citizens. Ezekiel was one of them. And the book began in chapter 1, and he's along the Kedar River. He is a priest a thousand miles away from home, without a temple, but he's called by God to speak to his people in Babylon. Now, how the people ended up there, let's just remind ourselves, is a straightforward matter of disobedience. Before all of this happened, they were living fat and happy in Israel, and they were content to walk away from their relationship with God, saying to themselves, what do we need God for? We feel pretty self-sufficient. Can't we just wing it on our own? Do we really have to follow his ways? Why not go along with more popular ideas that we see from some of the cool nations around us? And they did. They fed their own appetites. They did what they wanted. And they lived for themselves. But God warned them again and again that they did need him. That they were his people who belonged to him. And they had this special role to play in his plans. But not heeding that warning for generations finally resulted in judgment, the fall of the city, and the exile of the people. Our church staff has been reading a book in the past few weeks, just gotten going here with the new year. It's a book called Lead by Paul David Tripp. And in some of my reading this week, I came across a line in which he says, and I had to read it a few times, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but he said, even God's judgment is an act of his mercy. Even God's judgment is an act of his mercy. And and we might wonder, well, how can that be? Isn't judgment punishment? And Tripp says, judgment is still a means by which God gets our attention with the purpose that we will return to him. And if you think about this through a parenting lens, this will make all the sense in the world. 
when our two-year-old at our house is being defiant and disobedient, which some days feels like it sums up the life of a two-year-old, when he is in that place, we put him in a timeout. And at our house, it's not too far away. It's right in the hallway off the kitchen. That's his timeout spot. And this comes after many patient warnings that he could turn things around. But if he persists, we will keep our word to him and we will put him in time out. Or if you will, we send him into a little exile in the hallway. Now, do we do that just to punish him? No, that's not the heart of a parent. Now, there is a punitive element to it. I wouldn't deny that. But on the whole, we discipline him because we love him. And the consequence is to get his attention so that he turns from the wrong way and is restored to walking with his parents. In Ezekiel, we've talked about these two giant themes that fill this book, and that is judgment and hope. The book begins in judgment, the consequences of disobedience. Chapter after chapter, we live in that pretty bleak place in Ezekiel. But it ends with hope. It ends with restoration. And look at verse 2 in our reading as this unfolds. So here it is. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. So Ezekiel is physically in Babylon. This is a vision. But God is, in a sense, transporting him back to Israel and setting him on a mountain. The mountain is not named, but we could guess that it might be Mount Zion. They're right next to Jerusalem. And from there, Ezekiel has an excellent vantage point to see the city, which presumably is Jerusalem. Let's keep reading in verse 3. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. So who is this guy? It doesn't say. He's not named either. But the description of appearing like bronze is kind of like Bible code language to say that he is a supernatural visitor here, sent from heaven. And in his hands... He's holding a couple of tools that tell us what his job is. He is, like Mr. Josh Klein here from our church family, a surveyor. He's a surveyor. The linen cord is what they used for long measurements, like we would use a good-sized measuring tape. And then in the other hand, it says he's got a measuring rod, which was what they used for short measurements, and you might imagine... A yardstick from a school classroom. And these tools are a preview of what this heavenly messenger will be doing. He's going to be surveying the new temple. Verse 4. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you. For that is why you've been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. And that everything you see is what follows for several chapters that we're just going to hop over. But even if you just scan the headings over the various sections, you see it's a tour of the new temple, including measurements of every space. The multiple gates, the different courtyards, the inner rooms of the temple. It is extensive and exact. And we see 
even just by the measurements, we can see this is even bigger than Solomon's temple, than the first temple that had been destroyed. Now what is so hard for us to grasp, especially in a book like Ezekiel as we make our way through it, is how significant this would have been for Ezekiel to see the temple restored. This had been the central feature of their capital city. The focal point of all Israel. And the Babylonians had burned it to the ground. For us, maybe we can think back to the aftermath of 9-11 and that gaping hole on the New York City skyline. Perhaps by some comparison. For Israel, this had been a national tragedy to lose their temple. And for Ezekiel, a dream come true to see that the temple is restored. In our reading, we're skipping over all these chapters here where Ezekiel tours the temple. And he writes down the measurements that his tour guide gives him. And we're going to fast forward now to chapter 43. The second thing that Sherry read with us. When Ezekiel is brought back to the eastern gate to see something amazing. Ezekiel 43 verse 2. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. To understand the significance of what's happening here, we'd have to go back to chapter 10. And I won't have you turn there, but I'll describe what happens. That is the chapter where the glory of God leaves the temple. Things have gotten so bad in Israel. His people are so far from him that God actually leaves the temple, which had always been the visible symbol of God's presence with his people. Now, we know God doesn't need a temple. He can't be contained in a building. But dwelling in the temple had been a tangible way for people to see that God was with them. That he was in their midst. And now here in chapter 43... The glory of God is returning through the same gate that it left from many chapters earlier, the eastern gate. Now, another thing about this passage, when you and I see a phrase like the glory of God, is that a little tricky to picture? It is for me. It sounds biblical. It sounds like a nice thing, but what is it? The glory of God. To put it briefly, I would say, The glory of God is the visible appearance of God's presence. That might make a little bit more sense. It is something you can see. The visible appearance of God's presence. So in a sense, when we run into this phrase, the glory of God, maybe that helps to think of it as the presence of God. So here comes God's presence, and it says that his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. Have any of you stood there at Niagara Falls and heard that sound? Any of you done a road trip, been to Niagara Falls? How about the ocean? Have you stood on the beach and you have heard, so not the Gulf of Mexico, waves are too small on that side of Florida, but at the Atlantic or Pacific, those big waves that come crashing in and the sound just fills the air. The roar of rushing waters is an amazing sound. And Ezekiel says, That is the closest thing I know to describe what the voice of God sounds like. And by the way, John says the same thing in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. So there's something to hear as the glory of God, the presence of God returns. There's also something to see. It says that the land was radiant 
with his glory. Other translations say the earth shone with his glory. Which took me right back to the Christmas story and those shepherds out on their fields. When it says that the glory of the Lord shone around about them. Can you imagine the day when the whole earth shines with the glory of God? When all of this mess is put back to right? Ezekiel gets a preview of that. But as he does, it also gets him to thinking back to where he had been 20 years earlier in chapter 9. And Ezekiel says in our passage, 43 verse 3, The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen, that's chapter 9, when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I'd seen by the Kabar River, and I fell face down. So Ezekiel sees this story is coming full circle now. What started as judgment for sin is turning into hope for the future. God is coming back. His people are being restored. That valley of dry bones that Katie told us about last week, God is resurrecting his people and breathing spiritual life into those bones. And speaking of the Spirit, one last verse from Ezekiel 34 that will bring us home in this passage. Ezekiel says in verse 5, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Some Sundays it feels like the glory of the Lord is shining through those south windows, doesn't it? Now I want to name some practical observations with you now. As we have finished our work through the text. Maybe you've been wondering, Ezekiel, tricky book to understand. Where do we find some practical applications in a passage like this? But they're there, and I've noted five lessons that I'd like to share with you briefly And I'd like to do so under the banner of this statement this morning. And this is going to answer the question we started with. God strengthens us by glimpses of his glory and the joy of his presence. So we've been adding week by week to that question. How does God strengthen us? And here it is this Sunday. God strengthens us by glimpses of his glory and the joy of his presence. And I'm going to fill that idea out with these five thoughts briefly. Number one, my first observation, the absence of God's presence is life's greatest tragedy. The absence of God's presence is life's greatest tragedy. When God's presence left the temple, when when he left the city and he gave his people what they wanted, which was life on their own without God, it was actually the worst thing that could have ever happened to them. And eventually in exile, and it took a a while, a long while, but they start to figure this out. And the same principle is true for you and I. Living in sin, separated from God, is spiritual exile. It is a timeout without end. And the greatest personal tragedy that could ever befall us is to choose to stay there and live apart from God's presence. Conversely, number two, the experience of God's presence is life's greatest joy. The experience of God's presence is life's greatest joy. Ezekiel was over the moon to see God's presence return. This is what life is all about, living in the presence of God. And we might name those different life milestones as our greatest joy, 
You know, whatever that was, getting married or holding a baby in your arms. Some of those mountaintop experiences and actually the greatest experience we can have on earth is to know the presence of God. Kenneth Boa writes, all of life is to be lived in the presence and power of God. Not just for a few minutes, he says, or even an hour in the morning. It's as though sometimes we want to take a tiny nibble of spiritual food and hope that that sustains us for a while. And then we wonder why we're so weary and unable to live as Christ calls us to live. Kenneth Boas says, To truly enjoy the abundant life Jesus invited us into, we need to be more aware of God all the time, just as he was. Now, Katie asked us a great question last week. She says, well, does this make you super spiritual or unrelatable or just plain weird? Does it? I mean, can you still go about your everyday life like this, practicing the presence of God? Can you cheer on the Bengals or the Rams this afternoon and do so with an awareness that God is with you? Can you walk through the grocery store after church today, maybe pick up what you need for later or for this week, and do so with an awareness that you walk as a disciple of Jesus? Can you hang out with friends and remember that you have a friend who is closer than a brother? The experience of God's presence is life's greatest joy. Number three, the third application from this text. Invite God to be present in physical spaces. Okay, so this one I'm giving to you as an imperative. Invite God to be present in physical spaces. The presence of God in the temple is not purely symbolic. It means something. There's something consequential that happens when God resides in the temple. It does something. And we can take our cues not just from here in Ezekiel, but all over Scripture to invite God's presence into physical spaces. And so, have you committed your house or your apartment to the Lord? You could. Esther and I just did this a few years ago. For the first time ever, we thought, we should really just invite God to be present in our house. Have you ever thought about inviting God to be present in your classroom, in your school building, in your office? You could. Have you ever prayed over a car? Did you know you can do that too? And it doesn't need fancy words. It doesn't need a priest or a pastor to do it. But you can just ask God to be in this place. And if you want, you could even anoint that space with oil like we see them do often in the Bible. This is a little pastor insider tip, but you can order anointing oil off Amazon. You can. You don't need to be a pastor to do it. Or make it real easy, just go to your kitchen and you can use cooking oil. Or some of you might have essential oils. Oil is used as a symbol in the Bible. It's just a sign to indicate the presence of God. That's why they're anointing things and especially people with oil. Now what happens when you have oil running in your hands, right? 
It gets everywhere. Oil permeates. It fills up every dry crack of skin that you could have on your hands in February in Minnesota. Oil is a symbol of the presence of God. So if you're thinking about your house or where you live, you could do this. Do it as a family. Do it with your spouse. You can dip your finger in a little bit of oil like Esther and I decided to do a few years ago. And you can go to your front door and you can make the sign of the cross on that door frame over the top. And Esther, we didn't have any fancy words. We just said things like, God, this house belongs to you. God, would you fill this place with your presence? Lord, would you bless this home and all who live here? Invite God to be present in physical spaces. And yet, even as I say that, we know, don't we? Number four, four out of five here. God cannot be contained by buildings, boundaries, or borders. God cannot be contained by buildings, boundaries, or borders. That's why the church in Ukraine is not afraid of what comes. And next week, I cannot wait to tell you some news from our leadership team about a project that we are taking up in Ukraine in these very days. And we're going to invite you to be part of it. God didn't dwell in the temple because he actually needed a place to stay. He's not like the genie in Aladdin. And for me, I go back to the 90s version of Aladdin and Robin Williams' voice. You know, phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. God doesn't work that way. No, the temple was really a benefit for his people, a place to worship and for them to see that God was with them. But eventually the temple building will give way to something even better. John says in his gospel in chapter 2, the temple of which Jesus spoke was his own body. Where is the presence of God? It's in Jesus. And that leads us to our final application. Number five, God dwells in the hearts of his people. God dwells in the hearts of his people. After Jesus returns to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. He says it in John that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Does he send the Holy Spirit back to fill up the temple? No. But to dwell in the heart of every believer. Paul says to the Corinthians, to those following Jesus in the city of Corinth, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? That, my friends, is how God strengthens you. That is how He fills you up. By glimpses of His glory and the promise of His presence with you. And you don't need to climb the Alps to find it. Today, our congregation turns 12 years old. We turned 12. I didn't have any gray hair yet when we started the Y Church. That's changed. Are we anchored in these kinds of truths? Does the living God dwell here, not in a building, but in the hearts of his people? Can I hear a yes, an amen? Yes, yes. The day will come someday when this building no longer stands. 
God will dwell in the hearts of his people. Do you know that personally for you? Do you know the joy of God's presence in your life? How many birthdays have you celebrated? Have you turned from sin? Have you turned from that hallway of exile and come back to the God who loves you and made you? Let's turn to him now in prayer. Lord, exile being far from you is a hard and lonely place to be. And maybe some of us here have been feeling the exile of sin in our life. Something's not quite right, Lord. Doesn't feel like our life is adding up to what we thought it would be. And I pray in these very days, Lord, in this very moment, that your spirit would be calling to us and we would return to your presence. Lord, we thank you for that open-armed invitation that you give to us. And Lord, for some of us, perhaps, we notice that we can talk about the glory of the Lord, but maybe we don't really know what it means. There has been something about the daily experience of your presence that has been lost to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen every man, woman, and child who's here today by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be filled up by you and experience the joy of you walking with us, cheering on a football team, getting ready for a new school week. Lord, all of these ordinary experiences that they would be infused by knowing you receiving you, having more of you. Lord, you have been so good to give us 12 years. We pray, Lord, for this church body that our best years are yet to come. We love you. We praise you on this Sunday. All things, everything, in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.